guys, welcome back to another week of the Orange Card. My name is Tyler Dudley, and this week I'm joined with Jared Bomba. Hey, everyone. And Aaron Fish. Hey. Meanwhile, Will Moyo is away in Miami. How's everyone's week? My week's been good. My weekend was super busy. I was one of the hosts for the Orange versus White uh, men's basketball scrimmage on Friday night, and then yesterday, or no, on, on Saturday night, uh, SU men played Clemson, and I got to be on the ACC broadcast team, so it was pretty fun. Yeah, I got to jump in on yesterday's women's game between SU and Duke. And Tyler, you've been covering a bunch of games for the News House, so you're like basically the beat writer for the News House now. I spent my weekend, I covered the game Thursday, Friday night, I'm sorry, on Friday night. I was at the game Saturday, last night, Saturday night, and then I covered the game Sunday night. So I have been at all soccer games Yeah, you pretty much are the beat writer. It's been very busy. It's been very busy. I don't know if people know that they're talking to the most productive group of human beings in the world when they listen to us, but they kind of casually are. Let's give ourselves a pat on the back. Let's give ourselves a big... Nice (laughs) pat on the back. So to start off this week, both SU teams, they played their final home matches of the season. The U.S. women, they played. A, they had a match against South Korea while the MLS had decision day. Also, the U.S. did well at a World Cup. As always, we'll break down the top 10 things you need to know in world soccer. Finally, Jared and Aaron will take us into this week's stoppage time when they will discuss the student-athlete experience. We'll start with the men this week. The Orange, they won against Ohio State on Wednesday 2-1 to in non-conference play. Yet, they returned to ACC play and struggled on Saturday against Clemson. They gave up a 1-0 lead to Clemson at home, but ended up losing 2-1. With this loss, the men unfortunately still remain winless in ACC play with the record of 0-6-1. Another win at a conference play against Ohio State, Syracuse, like I, they're 6-2-1 outside of the ACC. How should the Orange feel about winning these non-conference games and not getting those conference wins? We've been a lot of doom and gloom recently because the men have struggled in the ACC. They're the only team entering the final game that has yet to win a game in the ACC. But it's encouraging that even in this down year, which I think we can safely call it now, they're still dominating out of conference. Their record in non-conference play is 6-2-1. and one. That's a winning percentage that you would be proud of, really. It's just, in conference, it's been a struggle, but it is encouraging that against the broader NCAA audience, they're still doing pretty well. It just shows how competitive this ACC conference is. There are seven teams in the top ten this week in the ACC. That's crazy. And that just shows that Syracuse is getting these out-of-conference wins because they they are a good team. We've talked about that before. They have a lot of talent. We really beat the ACC as really good horse just to death, but you're right. The fact that they're so successful against a good non-conference schedule it does say something about the quality of opponent they're facing in the conference. People talk about how difficult the ACC conference is overall. It is a very difficult conference. They are a great team. Now looking at the Clemson game, what happened with that game? <laughs> Syracuse, honestly, I, I was a color analyst for that game, and Syracuse came out playing hard. They came out balls to the wall. They were going to every ball hard. Uh <laughs> resulted in in some fouls I mean I think they had what 23 fouls fouls a lot of fouls but the goal came in the seventh minute in the game I mean to come out and score in the first 10 minutes that's pretty important I mean Jared you've you've played in a soccer game you know how important it is to score in the first 10 minutes absolutely we've been talking about energy all season and they just seem to have it from the off that goal was really well served ball by Buchanan peels with a class finish and 
that was both a product of the energy, but also continued it. And while the fouling was a little bit excessive, you were in the booth, you had to deal with the stoppages at play more than anyone, but it really brought the intensity to a game. It was a very physical game. Both teams were really happy to go at it, hammer and tongs. And that perpetuated that energy for Syracuse and really let them bring an edge that they hadn't had since Virginia, maybe? And the downfall of scoring in the first 10 minutes is that they had to defend pretty much the rest of the game. They they had a Clemson team who was very good offensively coming at them for the rest of the game. They were very aggressive. I agreed that they came out that first half. They came out wanting to play, and they looked like they had the heart, and they not only were in it to win, but they were in it just like they looked like they – just loved to be out on the field. And I think that says a lot about the way the momentum shifted. Ten minutes they score within the first ten minutes. That's incredible against Clemson. They're a ranked team. I don't think coming out of that Ohio State win, I think that was big, but I don't think they really expected to get out there and be on the board that early against such a good team. Unfortunately for the Orange, that energy kind of left them. There were a couple calls, probably should have been probably should have been penalty kicks. Those claims got denied, and I think it took some energy out of the Orange. Coach McIntyre had a couple comments about this after the game, and we can hear him now. I think there was a number of interesting decisions tonight on both ways. I don't think I don't think it, it favored one team or the other. I just think there was some a lot of errors tonight. The thing is, you there were 23 fouls that were called. So... Those fouls, yes, they happen. It's a matter of what they're going to call and what they're not going to call. The the ref's job is to control the game, and they have to be in control, and they have to make those decisions on what to call. There was a missed call that I thought that could have been a PK in Syracuse's own 18. um, It was just all no calls in the box, and I think that was the way the referee went about it. The rugby tackle on Hagman, I thought, was particularly (laughs) egregious, and and I only say it in that you're right. There were clearly a lot of fouls being called, but the ref, in his desire to not decide the game with a penalty call, wound up keeping it a one-goal game, two late goals for Clemson, and in a strange way, his lack of willingness also kind of decided the game. Now the men, they have one more game against ACC champions Wake Forest. We talked about this all the time. Can't believe I'm asking this, considering where this season started. What are are the men going winless in the conference? We just talked about the ACC being legit, but Wake has run through it at seven and zero. They're on twenty one points. Nobody else in the conference has more than thirteen. So putting aside Syracuse for a second, this Wake Forest team is legit. I think they're sitting at second in the country. I, I, there's no other way to say it. We love talking about the ACC. They're seven and zero in the ACC. That's pretty cut and dried. This doesn't take into account that the Orange haven't gotten the job done in conference. Yes, we talk about how every single game that they've lost has been a one-goal game, but they're still not producing those wins and getting those points. I think if I talk about it all the time, you have to finish, and that's what they don't do. They can't get those shots on goal. They don't finish those shots on goal, so they can't get on the board, and I think that's probably really frustrating, and that's got to be really frustrating knowing that They came into this Clemson game knowing that they needed a win just because they need a conference win. So the answer to the question, are they going winless in in conference? 
this would be the hardest game for them to win in conference. So I'm going to go with, yes, they are going to go winless in conference. I agree with you, but if there's an ever a win to get heading into conference playoffs, this would be the one, right? Definitely. And I think that they very well could get a win in conference play, but actual regular season conference against Wake, I don't know. I completely agree. Going into this Wake Forest game, Jared just said they're like second in the country. They're one of the best teams in the country right now. It's going to be a very difficult game. And I think the way I saw them play against Clemson is probably the best that I've seen them play. Mm -hmm. They played with a lot of heart. They played with the fact they just looked like they loved the game for once. And they were, it was fun. They really came together and there was a little, I saw a little open holes, kind of sloppy at first, but they really came together and they played really well. Do you guys think that they can win in the conference tournament at all? I mean, yeah. I just I just said I I think they can at least win. The first round game is going to be tough. It's going to be on the road. There's no doubt about that with their record in conference right now. It's definitely going to be a road game, and that's going to be tough going somewhere else and playing in the first round of, of, of the conference tournament. But I, I think they can pull it off. They have the talent. It's not hopeless. I think that they've been looking – better now than they have for the large majority of the season. Buchanan has come alive. He seems to have refound his footing, had a couple of really good moments the past couple of matches, and they they can continue to bring that intensity that they had on Saturday. I think that the talent can start to come back through and they can have you know at least some chances to knock off a top team in the ACC. Against Clemson, I really saw I really saw Adams really being really aggressive and fighting body to body with the defenders to fight for the ball and he was not giving up on the plate he wanted the ball and he looked like he was there to play and he was there to really get Syracuse on the board and try to get the ball up front to in into play so that we can get so they could get another shot on the board there's a reason Adams is a sophomore captain he's the engine he's the heart and soul he's going to bring it it's going to be his leadership that gets them over the hump in these close games and that brings the intensity to everybody else everybody else wants to play at his level because he is leading the team another person that I saw in that game that I was the most impressed in this Clemson game with him than I have been with him all season was Tejon Buchanan he he just seems like he's getting comfortable and that just that just shows that he's going to have a bright future here at Syracuse the freshman that's what's crazy. Well, and we've said, we've said that they have all these one-goal losses. Outrageous. That's the sort of thing, you know, extra contributions from Buchanan and Adams and maybe a couple other guys. They can get them over the hump and they can get some wins, maybe make a little run here. I'm really excited to see this team play next year. I really am. I think they have a lot looking forward. They're such a young team. There's so much to look forward to. Now, moving to the women, Coach Wedden, he transitioned to a 4-4-2 formation this week, and they played two ranked opponents at home. On Thursday, they were overmatched by a strong 12th-ranked Virginia team. On Sunday, they struggled in the first half before playing a little bit more aggressive in the second half, but it was still a tough 2-0 loss to 4th-ranked Duke in their final home game of the season. Starting with the Virginia game, here's Coach Wedden's reasoning behind the formation change. It was just for this matchup, you know. I think uh, we we knew we were going to have to play slightly differently, and I asked the team to play a different formation. I thought they did a heck of a job. Do you guys think the tactical shift did anything to help the Orange? Oh, definitely. They looked more solid defensively. Wound up giving up three goals after they pushed some numbers forward in the second half. But Alana O'Neill, we've seen her deployed as a very useful wing back and wide mid all year, but. 
serving as a you know really solid left back. There's no shortage of center backs on the team. So I think that three goals is a lot to give up, but I felt that they were a little bit more solid defensively somehow. He also put Bennett up front. She kept possession, and she started the counterattack that resulted in the goal. And it's funny to see her come up to the forward line because she's playing in the back all, all year. She had that, what, 40-yard banger against Miami, and I thought maybe that gave Coach Wedden a, a good idea. And it turned out to be a good idea. That goal that they did score was, a, I thought, a great counterattacking goal. A little ball forward to Bennett. She swings a ball all the way out to Brackett, who uses her pace, gets to the byline, whips a ball in, and Allen's there to just nod at home. It was a class goal. Me and lead producer Peter Benson were saying how it looked like Liverpool circa 2012. The counterattacking play was out of control. So definitely Bennett, very, very useful up there. Well, I covered that game, and I talked to Bennett after the game, and she was saying that coaches know best, and she says that she was very happy with the way that they played and that she thinks that they've excelled in that game than what they have in the past because of those changes. So do you guys like the idea of those changes to deal with other teams, or do you think it's a sign of weakness? I mean, Jared and I have talked about this before. I personally like that he as a coach is realizing that maybe he does need to adjust when they play other teams. When we spoke to Coach earlier in the season, he said he was very excited because this year he was going to play the 3-5-2. It's his formation, and teams are going to have to adjust to him. But it's I, I really respect the fact that he has realized that when he's playing against these better teams, he might need to make adjustments against them in order to get the win. This is going to blow people away. But I completely agree with you. Aww. <laughs> wow, you guys We're agree on something. Like each other. <laughs> I think that there's something to be said for identity. I talk a lot about identity and how knowing who you are as a team is very important in creating a sense of unity and really having a game you can bring to the field every time and building long-term success. But at this stage of the game, Coach Wedden has to acknowledge that they are not on the level of these ranked teams that they're playing. And so I respect his tactical know-how, his willingness to train players in new positions and do something that gives his players the best chance to succeed in their separate positions and give his team the best chance to succeed in terms of results. So I, for one, love the idea of having the same philosophy all the time, but kudos to Coach Wedden. I think the team looked better because of this change. Again, I covered the game, and Coach was saying that the entire first half that they played that 4-4-2 formation, but... When he decided to move people around, he says that he he called it moving pieces of the puzzle around mm-hmm. to try to get the best out of each individual player, and I think that's really important. Now, that was against Duke. They looked a little more in control. They had a few mistakes in the first half that kind of cost them the game. What did you guys see? The first half was all Duke. We can't deny that. Duke is just a really solid team. I was extremely impressed by them. The first goal, they transitioned so quickly played in behind, and Kayla McCoy with the left-footed hammer that beat Brosnan in the far post. It was just a great finish. The second goal was a big mistake, though. Bennett had been playing as a forward. She started as a forward. She went to play center back. She got injured like 30 seconds before this. She just passed the ball right to McCoy 25 yards out. McCoy just took it in and slotted it home for 2-0. It wasn't an awful half, but Duke is a really, really good team. Duke was the better team in the first half. And Syracuse paid for its mistakes. I mean, there there were some positives to the game, though. You played the number four team in the country to a 2 nothing game. That says a lot. 
they had some good attacking moments. And uh, Courtney Brosnan, by the way, still she's still pretty good. <laughs> Will isn't here to talk about her this week, but she was just exceptional again today, particularly. I can think of a couple of saves where I was just like, A, that was extremely brave. B, I don't know how she got her hand there. Or C, some combination of those two things. Uh, she came into the match with 323 career saves. She got seven, so that gets her to 330 for her career. That leaves her just one shy of tying the program record for Syracuse. So with their one remaining game, one more save will get her the tie. Two will get her it. the career record. I have all the confidence in the world. I do too. She's a gr- she's a great goalie. She really came out to play tonight. Like she held nothing back. Yeah, she conceded two goals, but I think she kind of just coming into the second half shook that off. Didn't concede any in the second half, and they still got the loss. But I think they played a lot better overall. Coach Wedden has sung her praises a lot, but you can see why. She's just really exceptional in all phases of the game. She's comfortable in the air. She kicks the ball well. She's a great shot stopper, and she controls her defense really well. Seeing her perform well, good way for her to play her last game at SU Soccer Stadium. The women, they're now mathematically eliminated from the ACC tournament. Syracuse, they have, like we said, they have one game left at Virginia Tech. Can the women finish their season with a win? Sure. I definitely think they can finish their season with a win. And I, I honestly, to finish this season with a win could give them a lot of confidence going into the offseason and going into next year. For me, I actually I wonder if there is a reasoning behind the numbers they send to the ACC tournament. I, I don't know the reasoning for why it's different than the men. Maybe you do. No, I don't, unfortunately. But it is unfortunate for them because a team like this women's team has played so hard all year long. And going into a tournament, if they were able to send the team, this is a team that I think deserves to go to go play in a conference tournament. And they they really could pull an upset with the talent that they have. So it kind of stinks knowing that that's the end for them next weekend. But uh, I, I definitely think they can end with a with a win. And there's no pressure. They don't have anything left to play for. Exactly. They can just go out and have fun. Roll the ball out, have some fun. I expect those six seniors to have a final frolic, go out, hopefully score some goals, and maybe more importantly than anything else, make some memories. Again, six seniors. Sunday was their senior day. Brosnan, O'Neill, Gordon, Street, Lamontane, Vigna, and junior Maddie Pack. They're all leaving. What position do you guys think needs to be replaced the most? Definitely Vigna. She, from day one, I have said to Jared and to to everybody, I think she is such a dominant force in that back line. And she is, she's a leader. She is pretty much, I think she is the best player on this team. So she's going to be very, very tough to replace. I don't think that Jess Vigna is the best player in that senior class. I think the best player is Courtney Brosnan. I think Coach Wedden would agree with me and probably a lot of other people that follow the SU women. But Lizzie Ann Prue, earlier this year we spoke to Coach Wedden and he said that she was, and I quote, one of the top goalkeepers in North America. That's not just a country, that's a continent, as I know you guys well know. Aaron, I know you're a geography buff. <laughs> She's Namibia. the best with geography. Right, Namibia, right, that's Namibia. all she knows. <laughs> but for that reason, I do think it's Jess Vigna. She brings a level of organization and containment and ability to that defense that very difficult to replace. Even though Shannon Aviza and Taylor Bennett, both very capable players, that leadership will be hard to replace. I think this was a very emotional game for the seniors. It was 
their last game to play at home. But I think Vigna really came out and was just – coach called her a stone wall, and she, like, she was a force to be reckoned with that game. I think that's harsh. I think she's a little faster than a stone wall. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brosnan is obviously, like you said, I, I completely agree. She is She's phenomenal. But, like you said, Lysianne Prue is ready to go. And you have to keep in mind that Coach Wedden is a goalkeeper coach. So for recruits to come here, he's worked with some of the best goalkeepers in the world. So that that, that adds a little, a little bit when you're a goalkeeper being recruited here. And this is no slight to the rest of the seniors, though. Coach Wedden said that this is one of the most influential classes he's ever had. Definitely. Players that came here knowing Syracuse would be in the ACC – players that had aspirations of making an ACC playoff and never did, unfortunately. But O'Neill and Gordon, we talked about them a lot. Hugely important players. Alana O'Neill's versatility proved to be one of the things that kept them afloat this year. Sheridan Street, hampered by injuries, but got a start on Sunday. Well-deserved, very solid player. And then you add into the, into the mix there LaMontagne, who for a lot of the season was the most dangerous offensive oh, yeah. player. That's a lot of talent. It's going to be hard to replace them. Now, hopefully they can at least get that end the season with that win against Virginia Tech. That's it for Syracuse soccer this week. After the break, we'll take a look at a variety of things in U.S. soccer. Welcome back. So let's get into a very eventful week in the U.S., the U.S. women, they played two comfortable games against South Korea, winning 3-1 to on Thursday evening in New Orleans before hammering the Koreans 6-0 on Sunday in North Carolina. What did we see in those two games? They just make scoring look easy. All of our dreams for what soccer should look like, I think that we see what it is closest to in the U.S. women's national team. Sometimes I feel like I shouldn't watch the game and I should just watch the highlights because then I can just see the box score, follow along, watch a bunch of dingers, and basically get exactly what I needed from soccer in about five minutes. They're just really fun to watch offensively. They're on another level of really technical execution. Nine goals in two games. That's just fun soccer. We watch all of the highlights, like you said, and we just sit there and we're like, oh, oh, every single shot is just fun. And I have to give a shout-out to Julie Ertz, my girl. She is just dominating in the midfield. Moving her from from the back line up into the offense has been the, one of the best decisions that U.S. women's soccer team has made. I completely agree. My favorite, your favorite, Julie Ertz, my favorite is Alex Morgan. I love to watch just, like, her simple touch on the ball. She's, she's good. After this after these two games, she scored 13 goals in the last 15 matches. That's insane. That's, that's like is. that's like a goal almost every match except for two, obviously. But like the big difference is 3 to 1 on Thursday and then 6 to nothing on Sunday. Like what a big jump. I'm glad you brought up Alex Morgan. Watching her play is so much fun. I watched a little bit of the game and she is technically able, but she keeps it really simple. And the way that she physically asserts herself all over the pitch, she just has that bounding stride that makes you want to see who she's going to blow past next really really entertaining stuff from her well and her I watched her goal on Thursday and she's like the ball is like getting ready to go out of bounds and she's like like sliding to the ball and literally just kicks it crosses it inside don't know how she did it and then they scored and I think it was Pew that scored 
and that was incredible. Mallory Pugh getting in there amongst the trees, getting a goal. Love that. Not always easy for wingers to get in there and score a goal, but when you have as much of the ball and as much possession and a player like Alex Morgan that creates stuff, you don't have problems running in from the flanks to get into the box into those positions. So good example there of what all that possession and ball dominance will give a team and when you have wingers getting in to score goals. I know you said it's a big difference going from a 3-1 game to a 6 nothing game, and we talked about it, I think, a few few weeks ago when the men played back-to-back, when you play a team twice, it's much easier because you know how the team plays. So I think that's kind of where the six goals came from the other night. Yeah, that's true. So from one national team to another, the U.S. under-17 men, they kind of have the next generation of U.S. soccer fans, giving them a little bit of hope in wake of uh, last week's disappointment for the senior team. The under-17 team, they made it to the quarterfinals of the U-17 World Cup in India before losing to England 4-1. to However, even though they lost, it's still, still pretty positive for them. What positives did we see from this young, young team? We spoke last week about other youngsters other than Christian Pulisic. Thank God Will's not here. He would take this conversation <laughs> hey, but you still have to mention completely d- different direction. But, you know, Josh Sargent, Akil Watts really gave good accounts of themselves. And Tim Weah, I think, was... The real revelation for the U.S., Tim Weah, son of George Weah, famous Liberian football. George Weah actually just elected president of Liberia, but that's not important. George Weah was a Ballon d'Or winner when he was playing for AC Milan in the 90s. So to see Tim Weah representing the U.S. at the U-17 level, scoring a couple really great goals, it's encouraging stuff. We talked last week about how they kind of need to sadly weed out the older people in the senior team and bring in young people I think this is a great team to look to they were able to make to advance this far into the quarterfinals that says a lot about their talent and I think as they they're under 17 as they grow older I think they have the potential to make it to the senior team if they keep playing the way they've been playing yes but there is still clearly a golf in class between England and the USA yeah it was obvious watching that game that guy Brewster who I think is in the Liverpool Academy don't tell Will just he finished with a hat trick scored three of the four goals for England and was just far and away the best player on the pitch so there are things that need to be adjusted there but again we shouldn't make light of the fact that a United States national team was in the quarterfinals of a World Cup no definitely and like Tyler said it is a positive thing moving forward after how we felt last week with the men's national team yeah I mean at this point we'll take anything we can get really honestly though now transitioning to the club game now um, the MLS regular season is now over Toronto FC they've already locked up the supporter shield but a 2-2 tie with Atlanta on decision day meant that Toronto have now become the all-time points leader in MLS history with 69 points that is one point better than the 1998 LA Galaxy team are they the team to beat headed into this MLS Cup in terms of being the best team all season yes they are definitely the best team there was a period in mid-September where they lost two games in a row weren't playing to their pinnacle just before that we had been talking about them maybe only losing like a handful of games the whole year so there was a little bump in the road but the fact that they've gotten back to what was their M.O. before that makes me think that they are the team to beat, yeah. And they have they have the confidence going, and they have to. Speaking of confidence, Sebastian Giovinco picked a little beer cup off the ground in their game yesterday and drank it. So, yes, they are confident, <laughs> and they have a little personality. <laughs> That's so great. That's good. I'm not too worried about them heading in Canada. 
maybe claiming MLS this year. We'll see. I don't know. That'll be interesting. As always, we move to the international game and let you know the top 10 things that happen in the world of soccer. With the Champions League, third round of fixtures, and plenty of action in Europe's top five leagues, there's a lot to get to. So we'll start with some bad news. After guiding the former unlikely champions of the EPL, Leicester City, to safety last season, manager Craig Shakespeare has been let go by the English side after grabbing six points in eight games to start the year. The Foxes won at the weekend at Swansea under caretaker manager Michael Appleton. Other managers are feeling the heat in the Premier League. Everton's Ronald Koeman is facing increased pressure after Arsenal dismantled them 5-2 in a strange encounter at Goodison Park. Both Will and lead producer Peter Benson are tending to their wounds right now as Manchester United suffered a shocking loss to Huddersfield while Will's team, Liverpool, were beat by Jared's Tottenham. For maybe the fifth time today, I'm very sad that Will is not here. I, <laughs> I know I'm that very sad. he would have had something to say about Liverpool's big win at the midweek, which we'll talk about in a couple seconds. But on Sunday, Tottenham shutting down Liverpool in the biggest Premier League <laughs> fixture of the weekend. Harry Kane, two goals. We talked about it before. He's truly world class. And generally, Liverpool just looked like a run-of-the-mill Prem team. We have talked about all this attacking talent they have, but Tottenham made them look perfectly normal, completely unremarkable. I just wish that I was here to rub it in Will's face a little bit more. That was a contrast from English teams in the Champions League this week as United, Liverpool, and Manchester City all picked up wins while Tottenham and Chelsea tied against Real Madrid and Roma. This is quite a change from previous campaigns where English sides have famously struggled. Elsewhere in Europe, Lionel Messi has reached 100 European goals, 98 of them in the Champions League, after scoring a goal in a 3-1 win against Olympiacos midweek. Jared, you get to talk about Messi again. Favorite time of the week. <laughs> Look, 100 goals in Europe, that's just mind-bending. Some of the best players, best strikers to ever play the game get to 25, and they can feel pretty good about that. 100 is incredible, but here's how it happens. Talking to lead producer Peter Benson, he says, uh, so how many goals did Messi have to reach that milestone? And my response was, only one. Because, like, Messi only scoring one goal is shocking. That pretty much says it all about the guy and his just otherworldly goal-scoring record. I completely agree. Domestically, Barca continued their undefeated start to the season with a solid 2-0 win against Malaga. Real Madrid dominated Ibar 3-0 at home to ensure Barca's lead over them at the top of the table remains five points. The big surprise in La Liga this season, however, has been Valencia, who also remain undefeated after nine games. Valencia dominated Sevilla 4-0 at home to remain second in the table, only four points behind Barca. PSG needed a late Edinson Cavani free kick to rescue a point in La Classic versus Marseille. The French powerhouse were down to 10 men after their $262 million man Neymar was sent off. In Germany, Borussia Dortmund were held to a 2-2 tie at Eintracht Frankfurt, while Bayern Munich eked out a 1-0 win in Hamburg to move joint top of the Bundesliga with Dortmund on 20 points. Finally, 10-man Juventus destroyed Udinese 6-2 as the champions chased Napoli at the top of Serie A. That's it for international soccer this week. These are the top 10 things you need to know. We're going to take a quick break before our analysts Jared and Aaron take us into this week's stoppage time. As we get towards the end of the season, Aaron and I wanted to take a brief moment to talk about something that is a huge part of every student-athlete's life, but is not always immediately obvious to observers, 
basically anyone that watches other than parents and players. That is the balance between sports and everything else in a college student's life. College is famous for making people choose between parties or school or something else, but for athletes, the set of decisions that they have to make is a lot more stringent. Balancing academics, which always has to be the first priority, with sports, which is, for most people, the second, is a really tough decision that is what really forges humans out of these people and makes adults out of these kids that enter as kids. So, Aaron, I wanted to start off by asking you about maybe your most outrageous story about the collision between academics and athletics. Jared, we we played Friday, Sunday every week. So I really didn't have much of a weekend like normal college students would. Uh, we would If we were on the road, it was always really tough. My craziest story would be on a Sunday. I forget where we were coming home from. Uh, I got home at around 5 p.m., still had some homework to do, even though I had started at the hotel. I, I went to uh, upload a project that I was working on. It was a video project, and my computer just crashed in the middle of the night. The project was due the next morning. I had no idea what to do. Thank goodness I lived in New York City because the Apple store was open 24-7, so I was able to take the subway into Manhattan to go to the Apple store to have them fix my laptop so that I was able to make it to class the next day and show this video. But it, it that's the life of a student athlete. If I had been home all weekend, I doubt that would have happened. And if it would have happened, I would have had more time to, to go to the Apple store. What about you, Jared? I think that my maybe funniest anecdote that I can add is during my freshman year, we were playing Johns Hopkins at home in the rain and I got a ball played down the right flank. And as I crossed it in the Johns Hopkins defender just need me in my standing leg. And I thought I'd really messed up my ACL or something badly, that lateral movement. I don't have to tell you about it, but <laughs> as I was sitting on the sideline, I wound up cursing really loudly in our trainer's face because we scored on the following corner kick, but that's an aside. That night, I was on crutches, unsure about my knee, and it was one of, I think, only two or three all-nighters I pulled in college. I was writing a couple papers, fueled entirely by coffee and Dr. Pepper, and I have a really funny memory of one of my good friends, Chris Scott, stopping us every half hour, maybe 45 minutes, for what he called a wheezy break. We were in the midst of all these papers, and he said, nope, if we don't stop and listen to Lil Wayne, every 45 minutes we're going to lose our minds. So I was just working straight through until about 6.45 in the morning. I crashed for about 45 minutes before going to like an 8.30 class. But yeah, that's a, that's a memorable one because I was on crutches the whole time. That's tough. And we talk about the time organization that student athletes have to have. You have to take care of your body, number one. I, I remember being in the training room for a majority of my college career with the injuries that I had to deal with. But even people that weren't dealing with serious injuries, they're still dealing with those minor injuries. They have to be in there every day, ice ice baths, heat, heat and stim, everything to get ready for those practices on top of sleeping and getting all of their homework done and eating well. Yeah, for me, sleeping was the big one. I know that I became a lot more disciplined, particularly my junior and senior years, about getting enough sleep because I did have all this work to do. And so it would just be easy for me to stay up until 3 in the morning, bang out work, and then crash, mess up my sleep schedule, and play poorly the next day. So for me, it was all about sleep. And the reason we bring this up is that we treat these athletes like professionals. They train and perform at such a high level that 
you actually understand how you can fall into this trap. But by sharing our experiences, Aaron, I think that we were hoping to tell people that, you know, for me, even as a Division three athlete, you were at Division one, so maybe a little closer. But there's so much else going on in these people's lives. You can't underestimate how difficult it is for these people to travel to North Carolina on a Thursday night, do all their homework on a plane or on a bus or in the dark or with snoring people all around them, <laughs> how difficult that is. And so when we demand all of this performance from them on the field, know that there are a lot more nuances in what they're dealing with. And we haven't even really talked about the importance of keeping a healthy social life. Yeah, people don't understand that playing a sport at the collegiate level is a job. You have to juggle academics, athletics, and your own personal well-being. It's also important to still be a college kid, too, and have fun with your friends once in a while. It wasn't easy, and there, for me, there was a lot of blood, sweat, and definitely a lot of tears. But I personally would not trade my college experience for anything in the world, and I believe most collegiate athletes would say the same thing. Well, thank you, Jared and Aaron, for that. I really do think that gives a lot of insight. I couldn't imagine traveling in the middle of the week, much less on a weekend, to go and have to play, do homework, and come back. I can barely handle being a student. So kudos to you guys, and kudos to all the athletes here at Syracuse. That's it for the Orange Card for this week. If you haven't followed us on Instagram or Twitter, be sure to follow us at the Orange Card SU. Also, if you haven't subscribed to us on iTunes, be sure to subscribe. A big thank you to our analyst, Jared. Thank you, thank you. And Aaron. Thanks, Tyler. We'll talk to you all next week.